Hi there, I'm Wyatt Stahl, and I'm here to reveal what SICD technology is, where it's headed, and most importantly, why you should be paying attention. This episode is an excerpt of the recent interview I had with Dr. Martin C. Burke, a cardiac electrophysiologist and respected authority on the clinical applications of cardiac defibrillation. This is Leading the Charge. to talk to you a little bit about the learning curve and your experience with implanting this device. Sometimes teaching old dogs new tricks can be a little bit of a challenge, and that's true for, I think, everybody. And what, what were the things that were very helpful for you to learn this technique? What, at what point did you realize you really had a feel for this? Could you describe that process for yourself? Yeah, so this device implant platform is a little different on three aspects. Number one is you're working in the lateral wall, and so you really need to get out your anatomy books and take a close look at this anatomy and understand the lateral wall musculature, including the anterior serratus, the latissimus dorsi, understand where the long thoracic nerve trails, and, you know, be diligent in understanding that anatomy so that you can have a good outcome. The second thing is to understand the sensing and the vectors of this particular device system. In other words, don't put a left-sided device in a dextrocardia patient because it's never going to work. That should be the first thing that goes through your head like, okay, I really do need to understand where the heart is and understand how it's positioned so that I can actually do the best thing for my patient from a sensing perspective. And then the third thing is tunneling. It really shouldn't be a big impediment. But, you know, I think anytime there's a new technique that's put in front of somebody, there can be, you know, early trepidation with that if you don't have any experience with it. So what helps people learn, physicians and planners, to learn that skill set? What are some of the key things you've observed? I think they just have to, it's not really that difficult. Actually, it's a lot simpler. And then the tools that are available now are so much better than what we had with the initial SICD regulatory implants. I I did a lot of tunneling over the years, so that was never a big problem for me. But I do believe that, you know, we were lucky enough to have in our fellowships a lot of tunneling of devices from the subcostal region. And I think I was able to pass it on to my fellows over the years which made them more comfortable with the tunneling process, which I think is something that, you know, everybody needed to regain confidence in as they started to move forward early on in the SICD experience. Mm -hmm. So I think that the, the process here is know your anatomy, understand the premise of the space between the subcutaneous and the muscular fascia, and land the electrodes, the can and the electrode in those specific areas. You just have to take the tools that you're given and become familiar with them. And if it takes time in the cadaver or it takes time, you know, just handling them in patients, your implant technique is only going to get better as you do it more. Are there any gaps in knowledge that you found in new implanters as they're learning the clinical practice? Current trainees, you know, with the advent of the simple study, aren't learning how to do defibrillation testing and understanding the science of defibrillation, which is so absolutely critical, that has been something that really helped me, right? Because think about it. Like if I had never done any transvenous 
defibrillation testing throughout my career. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, I was plopped down as principal investigator in this investigational device exemption trial with the SICD without any backup other than cutaneous electrodes that were placed in different positions than what we were normally used to. What was my understanding of this particular device system that allowed me to put patients through it? Well, it's the fact that I've done so much with defibrillation, cutaneous, you know, AEDs and things of that nature. And I delved into defibrillation to the point of confidence that in in this particular vector, I would not have a problem. And I think that this is very instructive as we move forward in training the next generation of people, because we don't want them to lose their understanding of defibrillation science. I think with the SICD, you you can really use that right now in your program to teach the fellows what they need to know. With the intramuscular technique that's being used today, the original implantations were usually subcutaneous, so hence the SICD name. How did that transition happen of going from subcutaneous to actually going intramuscular? Can you describe that process over time, how that happened? What happened was that when you have the ability just to put it into a subcutaneous space, you did not pay attention to the muscular plane as much, and you did allow for more fatty tissue to separate the can from the lateral wall. And I think the best way to do that, to get away from that, uh, and there's two reasons for the intramuscular. The one is to make sure you get to the correct plane because there is no fatty tissue between the uh, latissimus dorsi and the serratus anteriors. The curvature of the dorsal thorax, either left or right, moves forward. Number two, There was standard deviations of DFTs when you were in the subcutaneous space. And the DFT demonstrates that when you're in the intramuscular space, you're much more posterior within whatever the chest wall diameter the patient has. Mm -hmm. And this is going to afford you a much lower defibrillation threshold. So when you're looking at technique, I think the intramuscular technique morphed over time because of those issues. That's a a very good explanation. If you're looking at uh, the comfort of the device with the emblem, we haven't had many patients complain. I think if you look at the subcutaneous space versus the intramuscular, you're seeing that there's you know much more comfort with the intramuscular as long as you have a sizable latissimus dorsi. In some females, you have to be careful about going too posterior where the device might not have as much of a muscle to protect it. And so you have to weigh that based on the thorax itself. And certainly if you're in the subcutaneous space, you're much more likely to get noise and inappropriate shocks. And I think by moving to the intermuscular space, operators learned that the DFT was more consistent, less standard deviation and the sensing was much more robust. And we're seeing that as data comes out in untouched and in Praetorian. Now, with the procedure, what have you seen time-wise? So when you go into a case of a transvenous versus an SICD, what are some of the differences you see either in time for the two cases or predictability of the procedures? Can you give us some feedback on that? Yeah, I mean, I think that the time spent on the SICD really has to do with the anatomy of the patient. So Patients with a very large BMI, it's going to take more time to get to the correct plane to visualize bleeding and to make sure that you're going to have the correct tunneling plane. 
you might have to make a bigger incision with those patients, so it takes a little more time to close. So in those patients, you know, it's taken about an hour to an hour and a half to do that particular procedure. I think in thinner patients and normal BMI patients, it should be done, you know, pretty much within an hour. I mean, I'm sure people can do it faster. If you look at my time when I did my first 30, it was like an hour and a half to two hours. And, you know, now it's really more consistent that it's about an hour to an hour and a half. And that's just because I take a little more time closing and I do three layer closures on both incisions. Over the years, you've probably implanted devices in patients of just about every size and shape. How do you navigate that wide range of possible chest sizes? You know, there's a wide variety of diameters of chest. You can have the birdcage chest, you have the barrel chest. And the birdcage chest is a very rounded, very thin chest. And it's not just in females, it can be in males too. It's almost as if you're, you know, putting it right in the middle of the chest because the entire expanse of the diameter of the lateral chest is the distance of the device itself. And so being able to tuck that into the muscle in those patients is really helpful in order to get them the kind of comfort that you're looking for in most patients. There's very few patients, if you put this in correctly, where it's not relatively well hidden and built for comfort. Oh, really? So I think that you can see that this needs to be the go-to platform. It's built for comfort. Patients enjoy their lifestyle better, uh, especially when you're thinking about moving the shoulder girdle. You've got to take into account that patients would much prefer to have the comfort of an intramuscular SICD in the left lateral wall and a subcutaneous lead that has longevity beyond anything we're going to see in the transvenous study. And the Praetorian XL study will make this even much more compounded as you look forward to that data coming out over the next four years. This is an evolutionary process that's all linked, and it's just a matter of making a clinical decision using data, using the screening technique, and your ability to implant the platform is an important piece to that. And so your experience and your consistency in experiencing the operative theater with this device from, a, from the prep all the way through to closure is extremely important to having a successful program. Thank you very much. Thanks, Wyatt. Next time on Leading the Charge, we continue our multi-part discussion with Dr. Burke. But for now, that'll about do it. Thanks for joining me in Leading the Charge. I'm Wyatt Stahl. Until next time.